Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. This is Self-Improvement Edition. We, of course, check in with Florida Man, take a look at climate disclosures, consider the state of the compliance profession, take a look at SBF, consider conflicts of interest, and a wide variety of other stories. We had some technical issues, so our audio is a little suboptimal this week, which I apologize for. If you've enjoyed our podcast, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. Hi, welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance Podcast with me, Christy Grant-Hart. I'm here in New York City, hence the strangeness of this background and my vocals. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox, and this week we are covering the challenges for compliance with a lack of FCPA prosecutions. Why prosecutors are quoting the movie Dumb and Dumber with respect to Sam Bankman-Fried's trial, the scary new California climate disclosure laws, and of course, Florida Man. He's been trying to reach his daily theft quota. Did he make it? You'll find out soon. But first, how's your week been, Tom? And what do you think has been the most interesting development? Wow. Um, well, let's see. We're recording this on Thursday, so we have to say yesterday's development of uh, the House GOP finally elected a speaker. But who knows what could happen today? Apparently, Sam Bankman-Fried may take the witness stand really in his trial as early as today so that could be interesting we had donald trump fined for violating a gag order um it's just the hits are coming left and right so who knows what today or tomorrow will bring indeed so i wanted to start out with an article by dick casson and it's essentially the lull in fcpa enforcement and and I'm pretty sure you and I have talked about it, if not on a podcast, certainly informally and what it means. And as with many things Dick writes, initially I think, why on earth did he write it? Everybody knows that. Uh, but then when I read it, reread it, and thought about it, a lot of wisdom in there. Um, there are always ups and downs in FCPA enforcement. There have been years, indeed months, uh, I was thinking back to February 2016, we had 13 FCPA enforcement actions announced in that month alone. Wow. Well, that, that's more than this year and maybe last year. So what does all this mean? Uh, it means nothing, absolutely nothing. It doesn't mean there's a lull. It doesn't mean there's they're not doing their jobs. It doesn't mean there's not things in the pipeline. It simply means none have been announced. These can take literally years uh, from when an event occurs. We've had, I think it was Albemarle. The events occurred as early as 2009 um, and going forward. So um, just because there's a lull in FCPA enforcement does not mean the DOJ is not watching, the SEC is not watching. I would remind everyone 
Uh, Matt Galvan now works for the Department of Justice, and the significance of that is he led the most comprehensive internal data analytics program internal to a corporation uh, when he was at AB InBev, and he has brought those skills to the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice highlighted Albemarle's work in the data analytics field in its resolution document, a non-prosecution agreement, and the fact they did not were not required to have a monitor. So the DOJ is watching. They are still investigating. And even if there is a one-year or two-year lull in the number of enforcement actions announced, it means nothing. And compliance is even more important. And I would point to outside the realm of enforcement, where you have a finer penalty, into the realm of social media and reputational damage, where you could lose money off the top line, which means sales, because you've engaged in conduct that companies that has become uh, known through social media and literally exploded. So the pressure on compliance officers and compliance programs and compliance professionals is as great as it's ever been. If there is ever a floodgate again, that will be as meaningless as this lull is. There's ups and downs every year. So I'm glad Dick reminded us of that. I thought that part of Dick's article, first of all, it really hit home with me. I thought this one was terrific. I thought it was so great that you picked it. Was the business response to, okay, that's not happening anymore. We're not having any compliance or FCPA related actions. Why are we investing in this compliance program? Why is it so expensive? Why should we support it? These are real questions that compliance offices are answering and trying to say, yes, but it's coming again. Yes, but this is just a lull. I can see why it's causing challenges for so many of my peers. And I don't know how you would talk about it in, in the way that you just did and make it really resonate with the business owners if they're, if they're contemplating cutting resources. Absolutely. So um, I, I think it's meaningless. I'm glad Dick reminded of, us of that. And I'm glad he gave us a chance to have this discussion, Kristen. Yeah. Well, one that will rise again in one of our other articles so we can come back to these ideas. But let's talk about what's happening in Venezuela, which I thought was really interesting from a sanctions perspective. So the first article I wanted to talk about comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it is all about the U.S. lifting some broad sanctions against Venezuela for six months, which is interesting, an interesting carrot stick thing going on here. So it was very unexpected. The Biden administration announced the removal of the broad array of sanctions against Venezuela's oil and gas sector. So they removed the sanctions in response to a deal between Venezuelan President Maduro's authoritarian government and his political opposition that could lead to a actual presidential election next year. So the sanctioning instruments that had prohibited financial transactions in the country's energy sector and gold and mining industry have been removed. They also ended a ban on trading Venezuelan government bonds. So the removal of these sanctions is really a sweeping change. The Maduro government has been accused by the U.S. and other governments, things like election rigging, human rights abuses, and our friend corruption. So it is important to note that some of the U.S. sanctions, however, do remain in place. These include those leveled against Maduro himself and some of the high-ranking officials, the military officials, for alleged crimes, including drug trafficking and looting the country's oil industry. So it's really industrial as opposed to individual uh, sanctions that have been listed 
Um, the elections are supposed to happen in 2024. However, there is definitely concern already as representatives for the Venezuelan government said, hey, no, we don't need to pick a date. It's okay, we'll get there. So this is very big movement on sanctions. There has been definitely criticism that the government is already not following through on its promises, but's made them. And uh, in a beneficial outcome, in response to the sanctions being lifted, some Venezuela released some of the American political prisoners. Do you think this is sanctions shifting, Tom, or is this really an anomaly? Actually, I think this is huge. Mm -hmm. And I say that because of Venezuela has number two or three reserves in the world of oil. So if things get dicey in the Middle East, things are already dicey with Russia, who knows what's going to happen with China. We have a reliable source of oil right here in the Western Hemisphere, very close to the mainland United States. So number one, that's significant. Number two, the Venezuelan National Energy Company, PDVSA, is universally recognized as the most corrupt. Uh, in the first part of the last decade of this century, it was the cost to take a meeting was a Rolex. That's wow. to have the meeting. That's not to get the contract. So that tells you the level of corruption. And I say that with some sadness because in sort of 03, 04, 05, I met a lot of PDVSA lawyers at national and international energy conferences. And they were very dedicated professionals. They wanted to to not only learn their craft as energy lawyers, but they wanted to be a part of the international community. And they wanted their, they were very proud of their company and wanted to do so. And uh, Chavez and now Maduro have absolutely destroyed that. So anyone who does business in Venezuela, you don't have to go, you shouldn't go in there with eyes wide open. You need to go in there with your eyes pinned open with blinders, night vision goggles, and anything else. Because it is as high a risk as literally anywhere in the world, with the exception of perhaps North Korea, um, for certainly bribery and corruption. And of course, what would happen if things change and your property gets expropriated again? There's that. So lots of risk here. But when, when you have lots of risk, you have lots of opportunities. So for me, number one, it's the availability of these energy assets. But number two, it's for you and I, and hopefully a lot of other people, remind our colleagues, this is as high a risk as you will face in a in the energy space and, and if you do business in Venezuela. So do it with eyes wide open. Try to put in as aggressive a risk management strategy as you, as you can. Recognize that things can change literally on a dime. Uh, be prepared for the worst. Have an exit strategy. Um, and be ready. So uh, a lot's a lot buried in there. And as you see, my puppy is very excited to see you. She's missed <laughs> you greatly. And that that's Penny Lane for those watching this on YouTube. I think there's great opportunity, but great risk. So just be careful out there. Yeah. And talk about sea chains. We've got sea change in Venezuela. We've also got sea change in California. And man, is this causing consternation? Woo! All right, Tom, tell us about California. Well, I have to say the first thing I thought of this was I hope that Spark Consulting achieves that billion-dollar valuation so you will fall under this law. Man, I don't we're, know when you're going to get there, but hopefully soon. We're in scope three for so many companies. We're definitely going to do this anyway. So why don't you explain what's, what that means? 
yeah, there's, and I say that jokingly, but there is a floor for reporting entities or covered entities under two laws. The first is the Climate Corporate Data Accountability Act, which requires companies with valuations or annual revenues, I should say, not valuations, in excess of $1 billion to re- disclose scope one, scope two, scope three, greenhouse gas emissions. And the second bill, the Climate Related Financial Risk Act, requires companies to disclose climate-related financial risks to a task force on climate-related financial risks. So very comprehensive. This is what the SEC has been fumbling around over for 18 months now. Um, Once again, California is leading the United States in the discussion, and it applies not simply to businesses domiciled or headquartered in California, but those who are formed in the U.S. and doing business in California. So when you couple that with a billion dollars in, or a billion dollar revenue cap, or floor, I should say, then it's going to apply to very large corporations. But as with the uh, California Consumer Privacy Act, Christy, I think this is going to lead the U.S. discussion. All of those idiots in Texas who say, well, we're not California. Guess what? If you're doing business in California, you're in California. So uh, it's great that we finally have something uh, in place. Scope one, scope two, scope three are not new. A lot of discussion. People have been preparing for this. A lot of companies are doing this anyway. So it's not going to be a hard push. It's going to be work. Don't pretend to say it's not. But we finally have a law in place. And whether this leads Congress to doing anything or not, I don't know. Whether it leads the SEC to doing anything or not, I don't know. But it's going to lead the discussion and hopefully other states will follow suit uh, as well, just so we can get some uniformity in the United States. Tom, I think that this is gigantic. I'm, I'm here in New York working with one of the largest uh, investment firms in, in the whole world. And our discussion yesterday was around climate change, but, but more focused on modern slavery and human rights and third party due diligence. And one of the, the core questions was, is this just going to be Europe? And of course, just going to be Europe is a crazy statement because it applies to all these international companies, right? Um, but California, to me, is the new Europe in so many of these places, right? It took on data privacy long before, we, and of course, we still don't have an, a national standard. But I think that the the breadth of this law, these laws, is going to simply stop the discussion about whether or not the U.S. has climate disclosure obligations because. Any company of any size in the United States does business with what I think California is the fourth largest economy in the world, fourth or fifth in the world by itself. So this changes the game so dramatically, you know, and I don't think it's going to face the same challenges that the SEC will face because California does demonstrably have an interest, state interest in understanding its climate changes, especially with its coastal environments. So, you know, the SEC, there's at least an argument under the West Virginia versus EPA case that the SEC would be overreaching from its congressional delegation of powers. That's not going to be true in California. I think that this will stick. And I think it's a, I think it's a massive game changer. So it'll be really interesting to see how it all plays out. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. What do you have next for us? I have got uh, related to your first article. So this is a similar idea, basically, of criticism about what's going on with the DOJ, SEC, and FCPA. How do you like all of our alphabet soup there? So my article correlates nicely with yours, and it is from the FCPA professor, not one that's featured here uh, very often, 
And it focuses on his criticism that the DOJ and SEC don't always live up to their proclamations about what's important, specifically relating to holding individuals responsible for FCPA violations while rather obviously not doing so. So it's been years, I hadn't realized just how many, since they have prosecuted an individual, the SEC specifically. The nearly always caustic Mr. Professor took his aim at the SEC, opening with this fantastic line, quote, one reason to take the FCPA enforcement agency rhetoric with a grain of salt is because it is warranted, unquote. So he found six different quotes that the SEC policy is holding individuals accountable. We're going to do it. It's very important. And then reminds readers that the last individual FCPA enforcement action by the SEC occurred on October 14, 2020. So reminder, that's before anybody could get a COVID vaccine. It's that far back. So he closes by noting that since October 2020, there have been 20 corporate SEC FCPA actions, and none of them have involved uh, any individuals or any kind of involvement of prosecution of individuals. So, Tom, yeah, in light of your first article and how the lull in FCPA enforcement is affecting the compliance community, I think this article is particularly important because one would assume that the fear of individual prosecutions is moving at least some corporate executives to support the FCPA and anti-bribery compliance programs. Do you think that this is yet another sign of trouble or is this simply part of a lull and not a big deal? Um, I just think it's it's part of the ebb and flow. We've heard at least since 2015 when Sally Yates announced the Yates memo, individual prosecutions are at the top of our list. Well, we're still waiting for that. Um, so they try to use this, both the DOJ and SEC try to use this as a hammer. Uh, we do, or we did have one significant FCPA DOJ criminal prosecution scheduled for October. Unfortunately, that was, and that was the executives from the Cognizant Technologies case. That case was delayed due to witness issues coming to the United States. And now the federal judge is retiring. I believe he retires at the end of this month or take senior status. So his docket is going to another judge. That's going to delay this case. And um, we did have Roger Ung tried, and that was certainly significant. And um, so you don't need as many individual prosecutions to get the message across, but the point is you need some. So uh, um, I don't know what the SEC's track record is. My sense is it's um, not that great when prosecuting individuals under the FCPA, but an interesting point. I don't think it impacts what corporate corporate leaders think of personal liability at all. I think they're much more concerned about DOJ and criminal prosecution rather than civil prosecution. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's fair. But I do think that there does tend to be a I don't believe what you're saying thing going on when this happens four years just about without any of these kind of resolutions, I, I do think that it's a bit challenging and that they should be paying attention to it. So next up, um, I found an article about uh, monitorships, but not monitorships from the Department of Justice or the um, Securities and Exchange Commission, monitorships from the CFTC. Um, 
this agency was basically eviscerated during the Trump administration. So it has certainly got back on its feet a little bit and is more aggressively prosecuting um, the the cases that come before it. And they say the commission is much more interested in ensuring or using monitors and consultants to ensure remediation to reduce the likelihood of future misconduct. And sometimes that's called a monitor. Sometimes that's called a consultant. Um, But the division or rather the enforcement division for the CFTC is committed to using these in a way that perhaps the Department of Justice and and or SEC um, has is not committed to as forcefully. So we interesting to see occasionally we get FCPA actions through the CFTC a little bit tangential, but we've seen those. So uh, I think it's something for people in our space to watch, Christy. Tom, isn't it so exciting that we are affecting public policy in this way? I mean, two weeks ago, we were talking about, you know, the the Monaco speech and about um, Abermel and how we thought that the criteria for choosing a monitor, the number one being self-disclosure, at least I said I didn't like it and it was nonsense published about that, that actually it should be about making sure the program is working. Yay to the CFTC for hearing us. I'm sure that we are one of the major reasons that they changed tack. Um, in case anyone can't read my, my, my sarcasm here, I'm not suggesting 100% that that's true, but you never know. Um, I really like the separation that the CFTC gives between the idea of a monitor and a consultant, because they can impose one or the other. And that idea that a monitor is there to make sure if a program is not good, that they're fixing it and they're testing it. And the consultant's job is really to help them figure out what that is, how to make a good program. And frankly, I think um, in the context of a DOJ or SEC monitorship, that the monitor should be doing both and making sure that we continue with the good things that they have done the remediation. So I really think the CFTC has got this right. Well, Christy, I just have to say there's a reason two gurus won a communicators award. And the award-winning two gurus talk compliance certainly is leading the discussion that I think many in the government are listening to. So don't denigrate this podcast. I would never do so. It's it's exciting, more and more influential. So that's fantastic. And we'll talk about another influential person who is our friend, Matt Kelly. We love Matt. And he did some analysis on Thomson Reuters' new survey of the state of the profession. Um, so this comes from his blog, Radical Compliance, and it's called Report Insourcing Up Confidence Too. So Matt opens with an optimistic tone, noting that the Thomson Reuters survey of corporate compliance professionals found that most companies are bringing more compliance work in-house and that a solid majority of compliance officers are confident that their teams can handle the compliance risks they face. So we've got a very skilled profession. Even though senior compliance officers reported more and more work being done by their teams, yep, they felt that they were equipped to do so. Uh, So the top reasons for this assurance included having a team of knowledgeable personnel equipped with the resources they need, that was 42%, and having a strong corporate culture with equally strong management support cited by nearly a third. So we love some good management support. It's exciting to know that there's quite so much of that out there. There weren't only positive outcomes. So when it comes to technology, obviously not everyone is having a good time. So when it comes to things like spreadsheets, 20% of respondents admitted they still rely solely on them. 
78% said they rely on spreadsheets at least some of the time. That definitely is in line with what we see at Smart Compliance when we do program reviews. Less than half of the respondents say they have in-house custom-built software, which is something that a lot of companies would like. And a large majority said that they use multiple technologies to manage their reporting. So Matt finished his article by wondering if all these platforms putting out data were doing so in useful ways. I can tell you that they are not. <laughs> Please trying to get that integrated data is really tricky. Um, what caught your eye about this survey, Tom, when you were looking at either the survey itself or what Matt said about it? What do you think was most interesting? Christy, the, um, first of all, the Matt reviewing it always makes it something that we all should look at. But the um, state, um, I guess I thought about this in, in the context of some of the other surveys I've seen which uh, particularly the ECI, GBES, um, had a lot of pretty negative outcomes. Now, that focus was a little bit different than this, but um, when we talk about, you know, things like spreadsheets and technology and in many ways, many compliance programs are still operating at a suboptimal technological basis. And um, I don't know if that's because of resources. I don't know if that's because they're like you and me, they're lawyers and uh, for what the reason. But the thing I guess I'm sensing from the surveys I've seen, and we've got a big one coming up from Compliance Week, which is entitled Inside the Mind of the CCO. Um, things are I don't want to say negative, but maybe trending the wrong direction. So that's what I've seen with surveys this year. I, I'm not quite sure of the reason or reasons of it, um, but um, that's kind of the sense I got. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I'm, I'm proud that people are so positive about their teams and their knowledge. And we've been having compliance officers now in the corporate space for nearly 20 years and really increasing skills year on year lost students learning about compliance coming out. But I do think that there is a technology gap. I did a, a webinar for one of the major tech companies yesterday. 1,500 people came to that one. And it was about their survey on integration GRC data. And frankly, a lot of the answers were there's not a lot of consensus about how to do it. And there's not a lot of consensus about what should be included. And, and integrated reporting is really tricky. So we definitely are in a space where things are evolving. And my hope is that in two, three, five years time, the surveys say we've got a much better handle on this. So next up, we had an article from the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal, and it was a story about the U.S. reminding people, businesses rather, about selling not just arms, but really anything that could be used to create arms that could go to Iran. And this was in the context of the uh, current situation in the Middle East, where there's lots of heightened fears of a much broader conflict. But it was, um, I, th I think having this type of warning on a regular basis is critical, Christy. And it's not just, like I said, arms manufacturers. It's literally any company that can manufacture something that could be a part of an arm, circuit boards, gyroscopes, tubes, um, 
uh, heavy metals, light metals, uh, software products, anything that could be a part of an overall weapon system needs to, you need to be very careful about who you sell to, who your agents sell to, who your resellers sell to, who your distributors sell to, uh, whether they're selling in Dubai or in Germany, because we've seen Iran use cutouts in both of those countries. So I, I thought the, the warning and the reminder is once again appropriate. And if you are in, uh, see what I want people to understand is if you make products that you don't think are going to be covered by this, take a look at it again. And if you get a new customer, if something seems, if there's an anomaly, just check it out. That's called a red flag being raised and then clearing the red flag, if I can use compliance speed. So I thought the reminder by the U.S. was certainly appropriate given the circumstances in the Middle East. And I hope that companies will kind of redouble their efforts to make sure they don't inadvertently do something that violates any of these sanctions. All right, Tom, crystal ball time. So obviously the uh, Israel, Hamas, Palestine, all of Gaza, all of that is a very challenging and real situation. Do you think that the Iran sanctions are going to be ratcheted? Do you think that companies should respond with planning for what happens if that does occur? What, what do you think compliance officers should do in response to these warnings and also, frankly, the new war that's come out? I think that they have to plan on sanctions being ratcheted up immediately, more fulsomely, both in breadth and scope and amount. And I think it's going to be much more restrictive before it loosens up. I can't imagine we're going to have a resolution in the Middle East this month or even, you know, the first couple of weeks of next month. And my fear is, you know, my fear is it draws into a wider conflict. But even if it doesn't, I think the sabers are going to be rattling for a long time. Yeah, I agree. I think that this is one of those you need to start planning now because I agree with you. I, I would hope that it ends sooner than later, but my crystal ball says no. So I think that we need to to be thinking about that from the compliance perspective, especially if you're a manufacturing company. Sure. Uh, you mentioned Sam Bankman-Fried, our friend SBF earlier today, which frankly, the defense attorney in me thinks if he were to testify on his own behalf that he is in fact agreeing with the prosecution that some of his defense is in fact dumb and dumber. Um, so this article has by far the best title in this podcast today. It's from CNBC and it's called Prosecutors in Sam Bankman-Fried Trial Compare Defense Argument to Dumb and Dumber. So, uh, of course, any of you who are very young may not be familiar with the Jim Carrey movie about a couple of idiots, basically, who go and try to go cross-country to return some ransom money, but don't have it with them because they have an IOU. So Sam McMinnfried is currently at trial, and he faces seven criminal charges tied to the collapse of his crypto empire late last year. And if he found, is found guilty, he could face life in prison. So uh, what happened is the characters played by Jim Carrey alleges that an IOU for the money should, that should have been in the briefcase, the ransom money, is as good as money because it's an IOU. They're the same thing, right? So the prosecutors have tied SBF's defense to this movie. The defense that SBF is raising said that since the depositors of the money in the, the cryptocurrency exchange had a credit to use the funds that they deposited eventually, 
even if the money wasn't there because it was using being used for, and I quote, other things, unquote, the credits were just as good as cash. So I don't know about you, Tom, but I've never tried to use financial firm credits to buy groceries, and I'm pretty sure that the store prefers cash. So I don't know that I've ever seen this kind of reference prosecutorial documentation. The SBF just keeps getting better and better, really does. Yeah, this was a great article to select, but it's a part of a just a series of articles by a wide variety of writers who basically said the same thing, you know, what the heck is his defense? And, and it was, of course, only matched. What was his defense before trial when he was doing all these interviews and saying all these things on the record? Um, so it's it's only continued. Uh, as I mentioned, now it appears he's going to testify in his own defense. I cannot imagine. if you, Christy, if you just took his post-indictment statements, leaving aside all the other evidence they brought in, it would be a very compelling case. So um, I, I don't, I just, I don't know either, but it, it's a train wreck happening in front of all of our eyes in real time. And I'm like everyone else. I can't keep my eyes off of it. I mean, can you even imagine your you know, ex-business partner slash lover getting on the stand to testify against you? He's made a plea deal. I mean, everything about it is horrible, but I watched the George Stephanopoulos interview, I think it was in February, with my mouth agape actually yelling at the television saying, stop talking. So I think that if he hasn't stopped talking, apparently he's not going to stop talking now. So there we go. Yeah. So um, I can't wait to his testimony. (laughs) Christy, I ended my article selection with a piece from our good friend and frankly mentor, Jeff Kaplan who writes the Great Conflict of Interest blog. And Jeff is not only one of the top thought leaders in compliance, but he goes back to basics in a way that is done as well as perhaps anyone other than Dick Casson. And he wrote a blog post entitled Combining Conflict of Interest Program and Risk Assessments. And I don't mean to diminish this or demean this in any way, but conflicts of interest are as basic uh, to a compliance program as any other part of the compliance program. Yet Jeff rather goes through and sets out some of the standards you need to talk about and think about in doing a risk assessment for your conflict of interest program. So things like looking at the relevant conflict of interest history in your organization, looking at that with your competitors, making that inquiry with customer suppliers or third parties you're doing business, seeing whether conflicts of interest are even understood. What are your internal controls around conflicts of interest? Are you in an industry where there are industry-related risks? What about culture-related factors? What about your control process? When was the last time you looked at your program? Um, And it was just a fabulous article, and I hope everyone will actually take the time to read it because you do need to go back and review your conflict of interest program. And it can be one of the most devastating types of fraud because not only are your employees being corrupted, but they could conceivably corrupt your company as well in a way that you're not seeing because you're focused on your sales agent and your sales sides of things. So you know, kudos to Jeff for continually reminding us 
don't forget the basics. You may think it's low-hanging fruit, but sometimes low-hanging fruit deserves a really deep dive, and he's provided that for us in this blog post. So shout out, Jeff Kaplan. You know, I, I like this too. I think that conflicts of interest at many of our clients are, are radically misunderstood. I think that the likelihood that most of them have done a conflict-specific risk assessment is, high, is low. Uh, I think that there is a tremendous amount of, yeah, of course they know how to report, and a tremendous number of conflicts of interest policies that say, if one comes up, let us know. And really, when people, especially in manufacturing floors or retail stores, the likelihood that they have any concept of what a conflict is, the fact that their management thinks that they should, isn't the same thing. And I think this kind of risk assessment is really an intelligent way of going about it. And I think that Jeff is very practical in his advice of how to do it. So to agree with you, I think that this is this is not just theory, this is roadmap, and it's useful to the community to do that. And I like to give this example because it happened to me or rather my wife, during the pandemic, she gets an email from a very major vendor. We'd like your home address. I'm like, that's not good. Um, and she gets a, a DoorDash card uh, so that we could order some food. And I knew I used to work at the same company, so I knew what the dollar limit was. And probably inadvertently, the DoorDash was above there standard for conflicts of interest. And I said, you know, you have to report this. So be careful out there. You know who should also be careful out there is anyone from Florida. <laughs> because Florida man, Florida women, they are they are amongst us, but especially in Florida. So what would we be if we weren't finishing with a Florida man, woman, person, or human? I did not realize my my very first Florida man, woman story that this was going to become a theme. But it turns out it's not that hard to find the latest Florida man, woman story because they're everywhere. And thank you, Fox 35 Orlando, for being so good at identifying them and using the word Florida man. So this week, Florida man Fabio Fonseca was arrested on retail theft and felony drug charges. Why? Well, apparently he's very into self-development and he made it his quest to fulfill his self-imposed $300 a day theft quota. So yes, he had made himself a promise to steal at least $300 of goods per day. However, apparently he fulfilled all of his desires and had nothing interesting left to steal. So what do you do? Well, he began to take orders from people so he could fulfill his quota and then sell the sell those orderers the stolen items. So among the items stolen were beauty products, toys, suitcases, an air fryer, toiletries, clothes, and something called a squishmallow. Tom, are you familiar with a squishmallow? I am not, or at least I wasn't until I got prepared for this. I know it. I'm not prepared for this squishmallow. You can tell neither of us have young kids. The sheriff described the person as acting like a, quote, superstar secret shopper, unquote. So goals are a good thing, Tom, and I so respect Florida Man for making them. But a daily theft goal may not be the right one. So hopefully... When he gets out of jail, he'll choose something like daily push-ups or reading goals instead, because uh, that isn't a good one. <laughs> Self-improvement gone wrong. Self-improvement gone wrong. Well, I think we've hit our quota for fun and Florida for this week. So I'm Christy Granahard. Thank you for joining us at the Two Gurus Talk Compliance. Come back and see us next time. Thanks, Christy. I can't wait to see what we come up with next time. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning Two Gurus Talk Compliance. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever a great podcasts are listened to. Two Gurus Talk Compliance was recently awarded a Communicators Award for Top Podcast in Business. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. We've linked to all of the stories in the show notes, so if you'd like more information, you can click through the links and uh, check out these stories. I hope you will join Christy and I again next time when Two Gurus Talk Compliance, a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.